when it comes to psychedelics, when it comes to shamanism, when it comes to all these sorts of things, the, the most potent shamans, so to say, are also phenomenal magicians. And that magic has a technique to it. And that although it can't necessarily be measured by double-blind, placebo-controlled research trials, that there are people who can who can work with magic in significant ways. And, you know, I, I come from a background of very linear, very rational, very science, very like, this is it. And what I'm learning and opening up through my own psychedelic work, as well as the, the, the um, curriculum that we're even de- developing with Third Wave, is how do we go from... Um, how do we go from therapist to alchemist or therapist to a shaman or, or, or a, even a coach to an alchemist? In other words, the linear rational side of things is important, but what, um, what's even more useful is sort of the intuitive, nonlinear, non-rational and the way that we work with that. And that's what often psychedelics open up for folks is if they've been stuck in that very linear, rational, even an atheistic framework, a lot of people have a high dose of a psychedelic and they come out of that and go, I don't know what just happened, but I will never be the same since, or I have yeah. never been the same since. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have Paul Austin on the podcast. We chat about the mistakes the psychedelic community made in the past, the evolution of Paul's life, microdosing, and magic. Before we get started, here's your reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And as always, if you love the show, leave us your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated and helps us reach new people. Now it's time for some news to trip over. Federal regulations in Canada have been amended to allow physicians to request access to various drug therapies, including MDMA and psilocybin-assisted therapy, for their patients through a program called the SAP, or Special Access Program, which is similar in concept to the Right to Try legislation in the U.S. The pathway for psychedelics is in many ways following the pathways that cannabis took in Canada. Following the determination in 2001 that criminal prohibition to cannabis was unconstitutional in the context of medical use, the government created a program called the MMAR, Medical Marijuana Access Regulations, under which people with doctor support would request exemptions from the government to allow them to use cannabis for medical purposes. The government received a huge number of requests, which factored into the ultimate decision of the Liberal government to decide to legalize cannabis for medical use. The amendment to the SAP for psychedelics looks very similar to the creation of the MMAR and suggests that the Liberal government in Canada may be willing to take further steps towards enabling access to these life-changing therapies. That said, we shouldn't expect this to make access to psilocybin or MDMA-assisted therapies available to the masses just yet. It's expected that only the most severe of cases will receive permission under the SAP. Analyst Elmer Puros at Roth Capital recently issued a report in which he estimates that the potential size of the psychedelics industry in the U.S. alone could be worth more than $500 billion. Specifically, Puros said, quote, I conclude, based on all rigorously collected clinical data to date, that psychedelic medicines can be as transformative for mental health, if not more so, than the way immunotherapies revolutionized the field of oncology. 
Unfortunately, we are dealing with much larger numbers than the 17 million who are alive with cancer. Just by looking at the U.S. market size when combining treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, and substance use disorders, the number of people is a staggering 80 million without much treatment options. For the first time, we estimate that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy could represent a $500 billion opportunity in the U.S. alone that is five times larger than the current oncology market. Additional indications and the rest of the world certainly provides a significant upside to these figures." End quote. This is a significant step. For a long time, I've been advocating that people are underestimating the potential of the psychedelic market, and it's nice to see those predictions being validated through analysts at respected investment banks, such as Elmer at Roth Capital. Now, with that said, I'm here with Paul Austin, entrepreneur, public speaker, and trainer. He is an ally in the space and has founded two companies in the emerging psychedelic industry, Third Wave and Synthesis. Third Wave provides education around the responsible and intentional use of psychedelic substances, a hugely important platform for both credible knowledge and risk reduction. Synthesis takes a more hands-on approach and hosts retreat utilizing psilocybin truffles for creative breakthroughs, personal growth, and spiritual development in the Netherlands. Paul is a household name in our industry and has helped so many people realize the power of these medicines. So Paul, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Thank you, Ronan. I've been excited to do this podcast for some time. I'm glad we can um, finally press record and have a an extended combo. We had one a couple of years ago when you were on third wave and now yeah. the tables have turned. It, it, extended it turned. Tables have turned. Where, where are you calling in from? I think uh, I saw somewhere on socials you were in Hawaii recently. Are you still down there? I was there with family for like a 10-day vacation to Oahu. I just moved into a new spot in Miami. Oh, nice. So signed a lease. I'll be here for the next year. Um, so still tropical in that way. It seems like everyone in the psychedelics industry is moving to Miami. Does that seem to be the case? Well, you know, it's it's become a place. Miami is known as the cocaine capital of the world when we're talking about drugs, like what happened in the 70s and the 80s. So it sort of has that underlying cocaine stimulated energy. And, you know, I lived here for about a year at the very beginning of COVID as well. So I lived here for a year, moved away to the mountains, and now I've come back. Okay. And it's interesting to see how Miami has even transformed in the last few years where more plant medicine, meditation, breath work. Um, it seems to be a, a, a place where people feel free. People feel like they can explore things that are at the cutting edge, like psychedelics, like crypto, like blockchain, NFTs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, so th I think for, for that reason, it's, it's, it's become a hotspot of sorts. Yeah, it seems that way. It's, it seems like it's become very libertarian in, in many respects. And, you know, watching from Canada, and I don't propose to get too deep into the COVID conversation where I think Canada, or at least Ontario, has taken a relatively prudent approach to COVID restrictions, uh, seeing what's happening in the state of Florida with Rick DeSantis and all that kind of stuff is, is the polar opposite. And it, it's really interesting <laughs> because... Um, you know, so many psychedelic people are moving and, and there's so many things about what's happening that seem on some levels so in, intensely consistent with a, a psychedelic ethos as near as I can tell. And in some ways, so inconsistent with a psychedelic ethos. And, and maybe we should hop into this while we're at it. But it's like, in some ways, the very libertarian freedom, you know, explore your consciousness ethos makes sense. And like, I, I get why a lot of people in psychedelics would be attracted to that. 
in the same token, the opposite end of the libertarian approach, which is like everyone for themselves, gun blazing, do what you want. We don't care about rules. We don't care about masks or vaccine mandates. If you get sick, if you die, man, seems very anti-psychedelic. And, and I'm wondering if you've experienced that contradiction uh, in, in some ways, if that's a conversation point or if everyone's just like, hey, this is Miami, let's rock. Well, I'll start with my personal story in terms of why I moved to Miami, because sure. I think this could shed some light about what my, maybe my own values are and how they relate to psychedelics and, and all this sort of stuff. So I was living in Oakland um, for all of 2019. And um, when COVID hit in February, March 2020, I basically made the decision within 72 hours to leave Oakland and move to Miami, precisely because my anticipation was that California which shut down in an intense way, much like Ontario and, and the rest of Canada has, although I would say Canada has been even more intense mm -hmm. in some ways. And as an individual who is also very healthy and young, on an individual level, I thought Miami would be more free, right? So like by three months, gyms were back open. I was going to restaurants. You know, I could live a somewhat normal life here in Miami, whereas everywhere else it was still shut down. People had to be quarantined, et cetera, et cetera. Now I got COVID in July, um, 2020, I was sick for a couple of days. I had minor body aches and a flu. It passed. I lost my sense of taste and smell for about a week. Um, it passed and, you know, I've been very healthy ever since. So on an individual level, I think the individual is looking at how do they maximize freedom and expression. Now on a collective level, this is where it gets much more complicated, right? Because there's this there's a somewhat somewhat of a dilemma where with public health, um, the fact is people like you and I are significantly healthier than the average person. And so when governments are making mandates, they are creating rules for the average person, so to say. And to protect someone who is maybe obese or smokes or doesn't really take good care of themselves, that's necessary because COVID can be very, very... Um, uh, it can kill in that case, it's like we saw with the different comorbidities with COVID. However, one thing that I think is true is it's always it's always a balance, right? And what Miami has chosen is as a city to be more extreme one way. Toronto has chosen a different route. I think it's partly just government, Republican versus, let's say, Democrat. I also feel like it could be, and again, I we'll see how deep we want to go into this because by no means am I a medical doctor or an epidemiologist or anything like that. But what we know is vitamin D supplementation, for example, can help with COVID and help with COVID symptoms. Miami gets probably more vitamin D than almost any other city um, in, in the United States, for example, certainly more than Toronto. So there's, there's a lot of variables there that for me, choosing Miami felt right. And, um, but that might not be the case for, for everyone, so to say. Yeah, no, that, that that's entirely fair. Maybe we'll circle back into that conversation, but let's let's leave it for now. Which um, where I'd love to start is uh, you you've been a pioneer in this industry for a long time. You're one of the first conversations that actually we had field trip had in the psychedelic industry. It was it was Rick Doblin, it was Michael Pollan, it was the folks at Beckley. George Goldsmith, and I think you were number five uh, when we talked to you oh, about wow. third wave and, and all that kind of stuff and the work yeah. that you were doing. But I'm really interested to know what who was Paul Austin became before Paul Austin became 
the Paul Austin that I'm speaking to right now. Like, what was what was your path um, to to psychedelic exploration? I mean, I, I certainly read that Rolling Stone article about being the first microdosing microdosing coach. coach. Yeah, but I mean, I look at the pictures and I look at the persona you. I won't say project because that's not the right word, but the 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 kind of individual that you were seemed like a you know very kind of normal, happy, successful, capable guy um and and to lean so early into psychedelics especially in a in a manner around microdosing which is you know the science isn't quite as robust and uh, you know we don't have to debate that but it's just not as built it's not to say it doesn't work it's just not uh, the research isn't as much there it was it's more of a i guess a little bit of a more fringe kind of approach for a person who seemed who seemed and, and again this is very based on my very limited um ability to to poke into your path to be on a, a fairly straight and narrow course, you know, kind of entrepreneurial startup-y kind of person. So would love to hear your story. Like uh how how did you get on on this path to where you are right now with third wave and synthesis? And I think you're also an advisor to Cybin now too. So so many, so many things happening in the, the space, right? Yeah, it's yeah. crazy now. So one one sort of thing that I think can help to frame this is I equate privilege to responsibility, right? So if you were born into privilege or you have a certain level of privilege, then I think there's a concurrent level of responsibility that you take on in terms of contributing to the greater collective well-being. And so when, you know, I grew up West Michigan, um, small town, quite religious. I grew up in a very middle-class family, a couple sisters, Played soccer, ended up playing college soccer, played the violin, you know, the, the classes. I was pushed and challenged, but much more conventional in our, our understanding of drugs and all these things. At the same time, I was always more or less the, the, rebel, the, 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 the rebel, the black sheep, the independent thinker, the, the, the sort of argumentative debater within my family. You know, I remember growing up, my parents were like, you really should be a lawyer because you like to argue everything. I love, I love hearing when people say that. And then people who have been convinced that going to law school because they like to argue is a good idea when they get there and that right. blank face about like, what the hell did I just embark on is amazing. But at, yeah. anyway, okay. So you were the black sheep or, you know, in, in my conversation with Michael Paul and the way I described it is the shit disturber, the, the person who's asking the yeah. questions and pushing the buttons and seeing where the, the limits are. Okay. Right. And then, and then at the age of 19, I, I had my first, you know, major experience with LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. And at the age of 19, you know, I was between my sophomore and junior year of undergrad. It was a, um, you know, it's a formative time in someone's life. They're making a lot of decisions that could potentially impact them for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. And in those early psychedelic experiences, the, the experience itself helped me to sort of see through the veil of reality, if you will, right? And so one of the core things that we hear about, and this is again, this is higher doses. This is not, this is not microdosing. These are these are ego dissolving doses. And one of the things that I came away with from that was uh, that death is somewhat of an illusion. Death of the individual ego is an illusion that the self can never really die. And if that's the case, then why not create a life that I want to? fully be immersed and fully live within, so to say. So in other words, um, how can I develop the courage to do something that's unconventional and not necessarily wait till these sort of external achievements are ticked off, a resume or a 401k 
or a graduate degree or whatever it is, but why can't I just pursue this from the get-go? And again, this comes back to privilege. I, I was fortunate enough where coming out of university, undergrad, I had no debt, which is very rare that my dad worked at the school that I went to, so I had free tuition. Um, I came out, I had traveled internationally throughout college a couple times growing up. Um, you know, when I was 17, I went to Romania. When I was 11, I went to Costa Rica. And so what I was naturally drawn towards was how do I just, how do I travel after I, after I graduate so I can quote unquote, make the most of my 20s. So I can really uh, experience a lot of interesting, unique things because I thought what better way could I use my time and my energy to do? And the, the, the North Star for that was really freedom, freedom of expression, freedom to create, um, freedom to live as, as I wanted to live. And so when I was 21, I moved to Turkey. I taught English in a school in Turkey. I worked maybe 20 hours a week. I had the rest of the time to myself. So I just studied and taught myself how to build my own online business, read Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, read a bunch of other, you know, like the Lean Startup by Eric Reese and the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by some other guy, you know, all these books about it. And then I started a travel blog, built that, did a few things for it, and then eventually started a, a teaching English platform. So I took that skill in Turkey that I'd cultivated and, and built an online platform, moved to Thailand and bootstrapped it, right? Because yeah. I had no I had no investment. I had very little savings, but you can live for $1,000 a month in Chiang Mai. This is what Tim Ferriss called geo-arbitrage okay. uh, with the money that you're using. And then everything else can get reinvested. And one thing led to an X. And while I was building that in Thailand, I, I, I hadn't done psychedelics maybe for a couple of years. I'd done them in my early, like 19, 20, 20, 19 and 20 quite a bit, but then I took a little time off of them. And while I was building that first business, I heard Jim Fadiman on the, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast talk about microdosing. And I, I thought back to those early experiences, remembering the afterglow that I had and that integration period, what is what we now call it. I had no context for it then, the integration yeah. period, how smooth and flowy things felt at that point. And I thought, if I can microdose consistently, then maybe I can continue to elevate my performance. And so I started to microdose, found it beneficial. This was 2015, mid-2015 at the time. There were really no um, well-branded, well-presented um, sort of objective resources online to help teach and educate people. So I just thought, this is not going to be my main business. This is a hobby. This is a side project. I have this other business at this time. but I'm always thinking kind of 30-year plan when it comes to things. If I could do anything for the rest of my life, considering how much I've been transformed by these experiences, uh, you know, I, I, I want to make it central to my mission to help other people to use these tools in a, in a really responsible way. Because as someone who's super enthusiastic about history, I studied history in undergrad and I'm really big on it. I recognize a lot of the mistakes that were made in the 50s and 60s and I thought, how can we leverage the technology that has come about since the 50s and 60s to ensure that these compounds are responsibly integrated into our current frameworks? And so that's where third wave grew and microdosing and you know, synthesis. That's sort of the, the basic of it. And, to, and again, just to come back to the point that I made at the beginning, privilege equating to responsibility. When I started in 2015, I recognized that because I was at that point 25, I was white, I'm male. I'm well-spoken in some ways that um, I was at the bottom of the, 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 the totem pole, so to say, for anyone to come after, if you will. And so I thought, hey, if I can just put my neck out there and put that on the line, 
I can help a lot of people. And that is sort of the responsibility that I want to take on um, in helping to do this in a more fringe way, uh, which in some ways has been controversial, which we can get into as we further flesh this out. Cool. No, that, that's that's great. Thank you. Thank you for the background. Um, a couple of questions out of that. Hey, uh, I appreciate the the way you um, speak about privilege and responsibility, which is you know by virtue of the fact that you've been fortunate in the genetic lottery, so to speak. Um, you take on a commitment to push boundaries because you have more freedom to do so. If I'm understanding what you're, you're, you're trying to drive at, you have more freedom, you have more liberty. So, you know, you doing this is different than, you know, an African-American, you know, BIPOC person doing it because there's probably going to be greater scrutiny. And, and I guess there's a, in your mind, some sort of moral or ethical obligation, I'll say, even though that's probably not the right word, uh, to do so because of the potency of psychedelics and that power, the transformative power of it. Is that, is that accurate? I would say that's accurate. Yeah, we're tracking. Um, what were the when you talk about the mistakes of the fifties and fifties uh, and sixties and early seventies? How do you articulate what those are? I mean, people talk, question. people so think, talk about that a lot, right? Being like, "Oh, we can't make the mistake of the fifty like the sixties, but no one really says here's the mistakes that were made in the sixties that we have to avoid. Other than let's not get this shut down again, but that doesn't really offer a whole lot of guidance in in, in how to tactfully navigate this. Uh, I'm so curious to know what you think there. One, and I think there are wisdoms and nuggets of insight that are also relevant today because historically, the use of plant medicines, entheogenic substances, psychedelics have been largely within small private containers. So if we look back at the Eleusinian mysteries, if we look even at the use of ayahuasca in the Amazon, if we look at Soma in ancient India... But I think for now, particularly focusing on the mysteries, the greater mysteries that the Greeks participated in, if you participated in them, let's say like Plato and Aristotle did, you could tell no one else about them, right? And so the fact is in the 50s and 60s, it was the first time that we as a Western sort of um, culture had been exposed to psychedelics in a massive way ever. Because even if you track our history from a Western philosophical perspective, right, as, as Whitehead said, Everything in Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato, right? right. So um, if you track that, even in the ancient Greek time when they were using this, it wasn't massive and widespread. So what happened in the 50s and 60s is LSD comes on the scene in the mid-40s when Hoffman discovers it. Word starts to get out. So he sends it to hospitals and research institutions so they can work with it. It's looking to be a miracle substance in many ways because of what it can do from a mental health perspective. Over a thousand clinical papers are published on LSD but it's kept within the sort of um, the, the confines of institutions because, as we know, psychedelics can be so explosive, so chaotic. Now, what happened is you then had, you know, Gordon Watson, as part of this, went down to Mexico, psilocybin, Maria Sabina, front page of Life magazine, Leary and Richard Alport pick up on it, and they say, and Andrew Weil as well, who I know you've had on the podcast, they pick up on it and they say, Andrew Wilde didn't say this, but he was part of that initial crew. I want to, yeah. I want to clarify that at, yeah, at Harvard. Yeah. And they're like, well, this is really potent and really powerful. And what Leary wanted to do is essentially he saw this as a tool for a massive spiritual awakening um, because of how psychedelics are used. However, LSD is so potent 
right? It is one of, if not the most sort of potent psychedelic in terms of microgram level to, to the overall experience. That dowsing our culture in super high doses of acid ended up leading to a massive backlash. So Joan Didion, who recently passed away, wrote about this in, in Slouching Towards Bethlehem. One of her essays in there talks about how she went out to you know, San Francisco in the 60s and was hanging out with hippies and just how because of the overuse of these things, people just felt vacuous. People felt like they were going nowhere. People felt like there was no orientation, so to say. So because of that, we had a massive backlash. We had a crackdown. You know, it was going fine in institutions, but I think it was explicitly the irresponsible use of massive doses of LSD on a cultural level that were leading a lot of people to simply drop out as Leary said. And I think that is one thing that I've really always honored and paid attention to in assessing and understanding how this third wave of psychedelics can grow and develop from that. And it's why, in fact, I've led so much with microdosing. And we can, at some point, maybe talk about the research, but I think irrelevant to the research, the framing that potentially low doses of psychedelics, whether it's a microdose or a mini dose, slightly subperceptible or slightly perceptible, the reframing that those in fact can be healing and helpful and beneficial is necessary as this sort of starts to go outside the confines of strict regulatory um, institutions. And so that's always been the frame that I've taken it at. It's what went wrong is we tried to make the leap from clinic to culture in the 50s and 60s. It went sideways. How do we ensure that same leap from clinic to culture is successful um, this time around? Gotcha. Is there not an argument to be made, though, that the, the relevant question is not the size of the dose, uh, but rather the, the implication of responsibility, you know, and, and I use the word responsibility being the ability to respond, you know, to use it thoughtfully, um, to use it or articulately to use it productively and not abuse it to the point of leaving people vacuous. Uh, so is, is the size of the dose less relevant? And, and I get it. I mean, it, certainly it becomes much more palatable if it's a microdose for people who are maybe on the outside of this conversation. They're like, oh, well, it's a subperceptible dose. We're not going to have people tripping and jumping off buildings and being the golden bull and all that kind of stuff. Um, but is, is it kind of missing the point of the conversation uh, a little bit? To talk about dose level? To talk about dose level as opposed to responsibility, yeah. So I think the responsibility is central. I think higher dose levels naturally have more risk to them and can lead to more disassociated states, right? We've been hearing more and more stories, at least I have, about 5-MeO-DMT and some traumatic backlash from that, about ketamine, and some of the, you know, getting really into ketamine and the high doses for that. So I think you're right. The responsible and intentional use of psychedelics is, is center. It matters. However, naturally, a lower dose of a psychedelic is going to have less of a risk profile than a higher dose of a psychedelic, which I think could make safety, um, tolerability, efficacy better for a widespread population. You know, there was... Um, there was a Terrence McKenna talk at Esalen Institute in the 80s. And he brought up this very point. So Ralph Metzner, who was one of the OGs of the, the psychedelic space, um, stands up to ask a question at Esalen. 
And Ralph's basic question is, do you think the majority of people can actually handle the intensity of a high-dose experience? And essentially what Terrence said back to Ralph was, they probably can't. The chaos is too much. But Terrence thought between 5 and 10% of people could actually handle that high-dose of psychedelic. And so that leaves then the question, well, what about the other 90% who maybe the chaos and intensity of a high dose would be too much, but they could still find benefit from a microdose, a low dose that's done with a therapist or done with a coach or done in combination with meditation or breath work or some of these other modalities as well. Do you, do you agree with that assertion from Terrence McKenna that 90% of people probably aren't equipped to handle a large dose of psychedelics? That would be my overall sense, though I think we get to find out here in the next two to four years, just in terms of once this becomes medically available, how many people know it's an option and choose to go forward with it or say no because it's too overwhelming? Now, I think there's some nuance within this. Let's say MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, right? That's not necessarily a classic psychedelic. It tends to be much, much softer. So if we count that as a high dose, then I think higher than 10%, we could be looking at 30 to 40%. And that's why Rick chose, that's one of the core reasons why Rick chose MDMA is because of its softness. So I think that's also another key distinction between now and the 60s is now we have even more substances. I know Field Trip is also working on a, a FT-104 yep. that, that we can address some of these larger issues um, to make these more tolerable and more safe and, you know, uh, more healing for people because they'll actually work with and engage with the medicine. I'm going to ask, like, let's talk about the psych science of, of microdosing. And then I'm really curious to know what the role of coaching, you know, you started off as, as coaching and providing courses around microdosing. And I'd love to dig okay. into what, what function and what role that really plays in, in, in microdosing and how necessary is it? How long is it necessary for and, and all that kind of stuff? But let's start with the science first. Yeah, so there had been no science published on microdosing until 2017 okay. when Jim Fadiman and Sophia Kaur published what would have been observational research about, about 450 people who had tried microdosing. And it was more for clinical things. That what they found is it was helpful for depression. Uh, they were uncertain about most other things. It was kind of the basic overall conclusion that they came to. Now, prior to that, there was a lot of low-dose research published in Germany, of all places. Um, Torsten Passi wrote a book called The Science of Microdosing Psychedelics, where he does an outline and overview of all of the research from the 60s, 70s, and 80s on low doses of LSD. So we know some about low doses. And then um, with microdosing over the past, let's say, five years, there have been a lot of conflicting results that have come out. You know, there have been uh, the University of Chicago did a dose response study led by Harriet DeWitt, and they showed at 6, 13, and 20 micrograms of LSD, there was a response to the substance itself um, physiologically. And that, um, you know, it was they, they weren't test, it wasn't experimental research to test actually outcomes and benefits, but they did show that, you know, when they take this, there's something noticeable going on in the body that, that can be measured. Um, other research that's been done has been at the Beckley Foundation, where they've done low doses of LSD 
and shown how it increases something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is a precursor to neurogenesis. Uh, there was also the study that was done by um, Paul Stamets and um, a group out of Vancouver where they used an app called Microdose Me, I think is the name of it, and they tracked user data, I think like 5,000 people, to show that it was helpful for energy, it was helpful for mood, it was helpful for creativity. Um, but again, a lot of that is, that was experimental research, but it was not clinical. The other clinical stuff that I mentioned was clinical, but it wasn't necessarily looking at, at results of people who, going, who were going to the lab. And then there have been a handful of other studies as well. Generally, what we're, what we're noticing is that microdosing is helping with mood, energy, and creativity, and that it could also sometimes increase neuroticism. It could sometimes increase um, anxiety. It can sometimes increase uh, a few of these other maybe not so great things. And so this actually speaks to the importance of coaching. Right, because as you well know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is one part uh, the psychedelics, one part the psychotherapy, and they are synergistic in how the psychedelics act as a catalyst and the therapist helps for the integration. Coaching, as it relates to, let's say, microdosing or even low dose use, is just as relevant because a lot of the frames that people are coming from when it comes to taking a pill consistently are old Western biomedical frames like Prozac or Zoloft or Xanax. It's if I just take this pill, it'll fix what's wrong with me. What we know about psychedelics is psychedelics bring up into awareness what needs to be addressed, but the individual still has to be responsible for integrating practices that help to improve overall well-being on a long-term basis. And so our basic sort of thesis then, as it relates to that intersection of uh, microdosing, low-dosing, and coaching, is let's a lot of people are using microdosing to help wean off certain psychotropic medications, which again, I do not recommend doing by yourself. If you are on those, get the help of a qualified medical professional, absolutely. Um, a lot of people are using microdosing to get into flow, to be more creative, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and 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 that 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 sense of using a tool to help improve one's ability to learn, one's ability to change, one's ability to shift behavior means that what is relevant from a coaching perspective is how do we combine microdosing with other practices like meditation or yoga or diet or sleep to ensure that the um, change is happening on a consistent basis. And it's not just that someone is microdosing for a month, they feel better for a month, and then they fall back into their old ways. It's really that they're using microdosing in low doses, just like they would use a high dose of a psychedelic, to act as a catalyst to make significant habit changes going forward. Now, what we know is that the high dose psychedelic is efficacious at that for um, particular clinical conditions. Where the jury is still out as it relates to microdosing is how do those two worlds combine? How, how can we combine microdosing with other practices to improve overall efficacy? This is something that we've done uh, research on at Third Wave. So I know you had Greg Ferenstein on the podcast a while. Greg's leading our research. He's collecting a lot of case studies, you know, reviewing all of that. So we're coding and, and collecting a bunch of case studies right now. And more experimental clinical research is coming out, but it's still, I would say, fairly early 
stages on that. Uh, two questions. One is, what's the difference in your mind between, say, providing integration therapy uh, to someone who's going through a high-dose psychedelic experience and microdose coaching? And then the second question I have is, have you looked at conducting a study just comparing uh, microdosing versus microdosing with coaching to see the therapeutic outcomes? I mean, presume, actually, I think the more relevant one would be uh, microdosing plus coaching versus just regular coaching to see the therapeutic outcome differentials. Um, but uh, so two questions there. Well, I would almost see it like a, like a Venn diagram, so to say, right? Where there's an overlap there. So obviously, you know, with what you are doing at field trip, um, the integration therapy cannot include microdosing that's provided by field trip, at least not yet, Correct. right? Because that is not legally feasible in almost every jurisdiction. The exception to that may be the Netherlands location that you have. Yep. Um, so right now, just in terms of integration therapy, the therapists are limited with the tools that they can use to help with that integration process. However, um, with microdosing becoming more available as, you know, decrim explodes and as state-by-state -state legalization explodes and as FDA approval takes place, there will be more integration therapists who choose to legally weave microdosing in to their practice with the client. This is already happening underground extensively, but again, legally above ground, it's, it's, it's still in its early stages. Now, the other difference could be clarifying what is the difference between a coach and a therapist, right? Because that that's also another distinction where an integration therapist within a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy container is almost always helping the client to heal their past, so to say. They, they, maybe they have treatment-resistant depression or they have PTSD or they have an issue with addiction. I know this isn't across the board. There are also people who are doing this that are looking to, to, to perform better. But generally, therapy is how do we dig into the subconscious and the unconscious? How do we pull out old stories and narratives, old traumas, use psychedelics as a catharsis to bring those forward, and then integrate those so that you can become a more whole and healed person? So essentially, therapy is how do you help someone go from below baseline to baseline? And the role of coaching is more so, how do you help someone go from baseline to an even higher level of performance? And that's where the creative orientation comes into play, right? When you're a therapist, you're not usually pushing your client to achieve more, to envision that future reality. You're usually helping them to process what's happened to them in the past. But as you and I both know, with, with coaching that we've received, a coach is there to help push you past what you thought was previously possible. And a huge part of that is our ability to shift and learn and change, right? To get the ego out of the way and the resistance that the ego has, the identity, so to say, the personality has to change, to minimize that and to allow ourselves to flow in a much more fluid way. And so what microdosing can help within that, let's say, creative orientation and higher doses of psychedelics as well, this isn't just limited to microdosing, it can really help someone to accelerate their outcome. Right, like the with the way that I work with clients or the way that I'm worked with is when you're when you when 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 you're coaching someone or getting coached, it's really important to clarify and get very clear on the vision and the north star that you're stepping into. In other words, what is it that you want to create one year from now, three years from now, five years from now? This could be from a business perspective with the CEO. It could also just be for your own life. And then once you're rooted in that future reality what is your current reality and what's the discrepancy between the two? And then we ask, how can psychedelics as a tool help to accelerate 
the the goal of creation or manifestation. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. No, that, that, that helps clarify. Um, going back to the science for a second, I think I saw on, on Twitter, um, one of the probably more, uh, I'll say reputable, it's not the right word, um, but like the more probably recognized studies uh, on microdosing or, or at least a commentator was Robin Carhart Harris, who came out and basically said their study found that there was no effective difference between placebo and, and microdosing. Uh, and I think I saw on Twitter, you had expressed some thoughts about how the science is conducted at least, or or the, the, the lens through which... Um, you know, the studies are conducted and just curious to know your thoughts on, on that and how you res- would respond to, to Robin if, if I was Robin sitting here about that particular study <laughs> as opposed to Ronan. Uh, Ronan, Robin, Robin, Ronan, you know, we'll, we'll mix it up for you. <laughs> All these R's. Yeah, I know. Right? All these R's. This is a great question. So there was a research paper that was published in early 2021, I believe, out of Imperial that was led by David Arizzo and Balaj where they did a self-blinded study uh, with microdosers in the wild, so to say. And what they found is in that study that there was no significant difference between um, microdosers and non-microdosers as it related to X, Y, and Z. Now, we looked into that research, and what we found is, which is true for most, let's say, clinical research or even experimental research like this, there was also no additional sort of support provided to microdosers. And so that essentially taught us what we already know, which is also true with psychedelics to a large degree, higher doses of psychedelics, that if you just take the medicine, take the substance, take the pill, but don't actually fundamentally change anything about who you are, your habits, your sleep, your diet, these sorts of things, then then nothing significant is going to change. So it's essentially like what if we had done all that research with high doses of psychedelics, but we didn't give you a therapist or a coach or anyone to support you? We just said, take a bunch of psychedelics and then let us know how you feel in six months. Right. That was basically how the research study, both of them that, that were set up, the one in March, and then also the recent one that Robin uh, was commenting on, which I think came from Enzo Taglia Gucci, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, who was in the lab, who was looking at microdoses of of psilocybin. And this is the issue with pure clinical research in a laboratory format is the research cannot be interdisciplinary because as a result of them focusing on clinical research, they have to minimize as much variance as possible. So they have to explicitly and only look at the microdose itself. None of these studies are being set up where it's you're microdosing with the help of a coach who is coaching you and guiding you through this. So in a way, it's it's an unfair parallel to make to the high-dose studies, because in the high-dose studies, all of them include a psychotherapist and support in that way. And everyone who is prominent in the high-dose space says explicitly, if there wasn't therapy involved with this, it likely wouldn't be near as efficacious. And so I think that's a lot of what I was speaking to is let's look at how people are doing microdosing when they're combining it with other practices like like meditation, yoga, improvements to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And let's see how we can track and measure that data out in the real world rather than just doing it purely within a laboratory format. And I think this speaks to like, it's a bit of a chicken or egg dilemma because we almost need, the technology I think is there with Aura Rings and Blood Tracker, like uh, like in the, the, the app Inside Tracker, which you can uh, do blood draws from and track and measure like 50 different variables. So I think the the, re- the, the tools now exist where if we were to set that up and do it based on biometrics, we could actually see those tangible differences. It's just that 
there, I haven't yet seen a researcher who is pioneering enough in that space to actually create um, sort of an experimental approach that would properly reflect how microdosing is being actually used um, uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair comment actually on on all psychedelic research, which is we're looking at and using uh, objective questionnaires as the measures for improvements. But we're getting to a point, I think we're getting close, where there are biometrics. It's like, I think you're wearing an aura ring right there. I have a whoop strap yeah. on. You know, I'll say, and this is advice for everybody listening, over the last couple of weeks, I've started taking like three milligrams of melatonin each night when I go to sleep and my HRV has skyrocketed. It's, it's really remarkable. Wow. So a little piece of advice for anybody Buddy, that uh, look at melatonin uh, as a sleep aid. It, it does wonders, certainly for me. And and, and I agree with you overall. And, and and this is one of the sort of moral dilemmas that I, I kind of kind of come back to, which is you know there's a very real possibility that the success of psychedelics is placebo. You know, and and uh, you know even our chief science officer, Dr. Nathan Bryson, is like it, it may all be placebo, and it's going to be hard to parse out. And then you come back to the question of like, well, who cares if people are getting better, you know, does it matter that it's placebo? Is, is that such a bad thing? And on a purely scientific basis, it is because we haven't necessarily parsed out what the mechanism of action is, but on a humanitarian basis, who gives a fuck, right? You know, to be quite honest, it's like, it's working. Just because we don't understand why it's working doesn't necessarily detract from the fact that it's working. And and, and so there's that, there's always going to be that fundamental tension between clinical research as being the, the precursor to acceptance when clinical research is by definition going to be limited to trying to parse the answer as opposed to achieve the outcomes. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what you're, you're getting at with how you talk about those studies with... Um, Microdosing. Well, I think, and 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 to add to that, you know, when Prozac first came out in the early '80s, it was way more efficacious than it is now. Um, and now, 30 years or I think 40 years down the road, what we're discovering is Prozac and Zoloft are actually no more effective than a placebo. Turns out, yeah. and so there can off. There's also a um, I forget what the the precise term is, but there's a way in which when new medicines are introduced. They are. Um, they tend to have a, a higher level of efficacy initially than when they're being used on a widespread basis 20 years from now. So I think that'll be a big indicator to watch out for is what is the performance of psychedelics now compared to maybe 20 years from now. And I think like what you're doing with Field Trip and many other comp- organizations in the, in the space are doing, how can we create more specific molecules, so to say, so we can actually continue to iterate on and improve the overall efficacy? Because although we could say, yeah, these are just placebo, right? Groff called them nonspecific amplifiers. They're just amplifying what's already there, amplifying the power of the mind, et cetera, et cetera. We also know that psychedelics are anti-inflammatory, Right. Research published out of 2018, Charles Nichols, LSU, psychedelics as anti-inflammatory agents. We know inflammation is tied to depression, addiction, many other things. We know gut health matters most. We also know psychedelics are, they they can help facilitate neurogenesis at at higher doses. We've done brain studies and brain imaging with that. So there is a sense of certainly part of this is placebo. Certainly the efficacy might wane over time. And we're seeing hard sort of physiological markers that these are doing more than just sort of imp- impacting the psyche. Totally. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, switching topics for a second. I think one of the things that I find so interesting about you, Paul, is that of the kind of recognized leaders in the psychedelic space right now, um, 
you're one of the younger ones and, and you've, uh, I guess, have much more of a presence on social media than, you know, I guess Rick Doblin has a massive following on Twitter on that stuff, but he hasn't lived his life on social media. So to like get the story of Rick Doblin, I just saw a picture of Rick from like the 1980s and I was like, holy crap, that's Rick. Um, but, you know, you've had your life and you've put, put it out on social media. So as I was scrolling through your Instagram, I kind of noticed that, like, at least in your Instagram, who Paul Austin is has evolved over time, you know, and, and what you talk about and how you present and what you're interested in, what pictures you present has, has, has changed. And I'm curious to know, um, how have you witnessed yourself changing. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about people in the psychedelic space is that they're highly conscious of their own consciousness. Um, and I suspect you are as well. So curious to know how you've like, if you've kind of, if you scrolled through your Instagram right now and looked at the evolution of pictures, what, what's shifted in you? I have way better hair. <laughs> I'm jealous of thing. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So we're, we're teaching, uh, we're doing like a coaching training program now. So we're training coaches to, to be able to go out and work with clients. And we had a lecture today. And one thing that I mentioned in that lecture is that even if a client is coming in to work with you as a coach and they say, hey, I'm all about leadership. I'm all about performance. I'm all about getting to that next level. If they've never worked with psychedelics or they haven't done a lot of practice, awareness practice, chances are there's going to be some initial healing to move through uh, from trauma, from repressed emotion, from things like that. And I think that was, that was always the case with me. You know, I've, I've never been clinically diagnosed with anything. I've never been on any sort of pharmaceutical medication. I don't have any major sort of significant traumas. Um, I will say, however, I have family who are on certain psychotropic medications. Um, they've just chose to deal with life differently than I have. And yeah. I, there's no judgment in that. I'm just it's it's a bit of a different approach. And so the, the and I think that's largely because I found psychedelics when I was 19, and those experiences that I had with early psychedelics were so healing and helpful that I thought these are the tools that I need in my back pocket, along with diet and meditation and all this other stuff, to really help me to feel better about myself. <laughs> because when I was 19 and 20, I had so much shame around who I was. Um, you know, the culture that I grew up in in West Michigan was was even more conventional, like like super mid Midwest conventional. I was perceived to be sort of out there and weird and different. And I always internalized that as something was wrong with me. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so there was a high degree, I think, of self-loathing that then developed in my formative years that it really wasn't until I would say my mid to late 20s that I started to finally like release and let go of that. So I would say the first and foremost thing is the, 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 the letting go of shame. Um, shame in particular, shame is insidious and, and, and just getting it out is so, so helpful. And, and in that, I came to appreciate myself much more. I think after that was removed, the next step that I went through was attempting to let go of this story that my external achievements would provide me um, with the validation that I needed. Um, even early days when I was starting third wave, I was so driven by building, 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 building that I just had blinders on and went as hard as I could. Now I was also in my early to mid twenties, I had a ton of energy. Um, now you're and went as hard and, and as fast as I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, as, when as hard and as fast as I could and in putting those blinders on, I just, I, I kind of went on a, 
on a one track and I just sacrificed everything else. I burned myself out a couple times. Um, I, I was very heady and very intellectual. And I think over the past, really since I started working with ayahuasca about four years ago, I've slowed down. I've taken less on. Um, I've been less busy. I've definitely reduced my neuroticism and become more embodied. Um, one of the major things that was helpful for that was doing body work with ketamine in particular, the, the somatic experiencing of that. So I've started, you know, all of us in a Western culture, or most of us who have grown up in, in, in North America or Western culture are sort of inculcated into this Protestant work ethic mentality that sacrifice is required for success. And the more that I've let go of that and tried to weave in a uh, sort of a playful sense of fun into the work that I've done, um, the easier, the more flowy that it's become. And then I think the third thing would be like, you know, um, leadership and, you know, the interpersonal relationships. I've, I've been running my own businesses now for seven and a half years. There have been some ups and downs. Um, you know, I had a point when I was running third wave where almost our entire team quit. This was, this was, um, I don't talk about this publicly that often, but why the hell not? This was, um, appreciate that. This, this is at the apex of the me too movement and, and cancel culture. And we were going to host an event with a controversial author and blah, 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 blah. That was sort of the, 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 the the need the, the the whatever that broke the camel's back the the needle that the straw I forget the, hey, the, straw the straw that broke the, the, the straw the straw that broke the camel's back and but like the truth was for the first few years that I was running third wave I didn't show up really strong in a leadership way I maybe I I wasn't as communicative or appreciative as I needed to be or I wasn't as integrity as as in integrity as I wanted to be and so that was also a huge learning process in, in, in a leadership framework is really learning the hard way how I had to grow and develop as a leader. Because by that point in time, I was already a public figure. And so maybe about a year, year and a half after that, once all the dust settled and we had started to rebuild in a significant way, I brought in an executive coach, very high level, and she was significant in helping me to further coach me through leadership development and, and, and leadership abilities. So there's still a lot like, like now when I look at myself in terms of awareness, there's, you know, I, I struggle at times with cannabis, uh, too much cannabis as a way to numb. I don't always process anger and sadness all that well. So I recently had a 5-MeO DMT experience, which is Bufo alvarius, the toad, and essentially had a bunch of anger that just released through that where I was like, where the hell did that come from? So there's still things that like that are repressed emotions that aren't fully out. But I would say just to sort of put a cap on this, I'm more embodied. Um, I have a lot less shame about who I am and the level of depth and presence that I've cultivated in terms of how I listen and show up for people, especially in a leadership capacity, has significantly evolved. Cool. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate the vulnerability in it. And a lot of that story resonates with uh, with me, uh, you know, right now focused on, on esteem and esteem building, you know, done a lot of the shame work. Now the esteem building, uh, that's, that's the hard part. Cause I realized yeah. that like, uh, that, that goes a long way down. Um, on, uh, there's, uh, I, I just, I have so many questions. I just, I don't know why, but I want to poke through your socials, uh, and, and like, just 
pick up some of these. And, and I don't know if you, you listen to field tripping uh, at all and, and, and no judgment if you don't, but we had Michael Pollan on uh, just before the end of the year, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it, what that, what preparing that conversation did for me is really kind of synthesize what I want to achieve through field tripping, which is to help people see the world through the lens of other eyes, right? So understand what it's like to be in the head of Michael Pollan and see the world through the eyes of Michael Pollan. So that, that, episode was actually called Your Mind on Michael Pollan as a, as a nod to his latest book, right? Uh, and, and so this, in, in many respects, is supposed to be your mind on on Paul Austin. Um, and, and so your socials are like a, a great source of like finding those things that are interesting or like, you know, subjects that are provocative. So here's here's one. On January 2nd, you tweeted, how much woke could a woke chuck chuck if a woke chuck could chuck woke? Um, can, can you parse that? And it, that's like... I, I I think in many levels I agree with the 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 sentiment underlying that, which is, you know, the 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 woke movement has a lot of value, but it's got a lot of problems as well. Um, uh, and it's pointed in the right direction, even if maybe the, the the techniques underlying it and maybe even the fundamental thesis of what drives it is is problematic. But I, I would never put that out there because I feel like you'd just be ambushed by people who would not accept that. So do you, do you want to elaborate on that or do you want to move off that topic and just forget it? Because there's other things I, that are probably less. Oh, no, I love it. This is, this is gold, Ronan. I, I commend you for your your podcast um, preparation. This is, this is phenomenal. I've never had someone who has gone live with me to talk through some of the ridiculous tweets that I've put out into the world. So that one was, I was with a good friend in LA end of this year and we were talking about t-shirt ideas. Okay. And his t-shirt idea was to put that on a t-shirt with a little, with a little uh, woodchuck. And, uh, and I, I, it, we didn't, we didn't even get into the sort of intellectual side of it in okay. terms of, you know, the woke crowd and all that. It was just more of like a fun, a, a fun, goofy thing that I put out there. But I'm so glad that you brought that up as on an alternate perspective, because I think that is like, I was aware of that in doing it. And I'm very much, I wouldn't say I'm anti-woke, but I'm, I'm certainly, I don't consider myself to be part of the far left or social justice or woke crowd. And I think like you, there are a lot of um, benefits to it. There's a lot of awareness that it's bringing in, but a lot of the energy that's coming into it, I would say is unprocessed uh, and and not the most productive. Um, But, yeah, that's the that's the basics of it. So uh, can right. we do can we do tweet two? Do we have do we have a uh, second tweet? Oh yeah, I got three tweets. Yeah. Um, okay, all yeah. right. So we'll go in uh, chronological order. I think um, on January fourth of this year, you tweeted, "Magic is real." <laughs> what inspired that? And for the record, you know, one of the themes that has always come up in my life, and it sounds ridiculous in some levels, but magic has always been a theme that's always resonated with me. And I'll tell you the first instance with magic in, in my life, at least that I can recall, which was in nineteen eighty seven. You know, as a young, I was eight years old, seven years old, and as a sports fan, and the Lakers were playing the Celtics in um, the NBA Finals, and I don't know why I was just like, eh, the Lakers are going to win, and all of a sudden I became a huge fan of Magic Johnson, and he just became my favorite player for for a long time. But I've noticed that the theme of magic has popped up in my life very often, and um, so I, you know, I was really curious about this because I, I agree, magic is real, and, and it depends on how you choose to define magic. You know, sleight of hand is not magic, although, you know, I think there's an element of magic in, in building the skill set to become good at sleight of hand, um, but. 
I like how Mark Short, Dr. Mark Short, who worked with us at a field trip, I think he described magic as the ability to create something out of nothing, even that if that takes a lot of time, uh, is how he defined magic. And I thought that was a, a really cool way to, to conceive of it. But what inspired that tweet and, and how do you define magic? So I was reading a book at the time called Real Magic by a guy named Dean Radin. Dean is part of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he's also a faculty at CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies. And essentially what Dean talked about in the book is how um, only within the past few hundred years has magic really been pushed under the carpet. And in many ways, magic has always been pushed under the carpet. Right, since since Descartes and reductionism and the scientific method, a lot of people have sort of um, poo-pooed magic. And yet, what we know is is um, when it comes to psychedelics, when it comes to shamanism, when it comes to all of these sorts of things, the the most potent shamans, so to say, are also phenomenal magicians. And that magic has a technique to it, and that although it can't necessarily be measured by double-blind, placebo-controlled research trials that there are people who can who can work with magic in significant ways. And, you know, I, I come from a background of very linear, very rational, very science, very like, this is it. And what I'm learning and opening up through my own psychedelic work, as well as the, the, the um, curriculum that we're even de- developing with Third Wave, is how do we go from, um, how do we go from therapist to alchemist or therapist to a shaman or, or, or a, even a coach to an alchemist. In other words, the linear rational side of things is important, but what, um, what's even more useful is sort of the intuitive, non-linear, non-rational, and the way that we work with that. And that's what often psychedelics open up for folks, is if they've been stuck in that very linear, rational, even an atheistic framework, a lot of people have a high dose of a psychedelic and they come out of that and go, I don't know what just happened, but I will never be the same since, or I have yeah. never been the same since. And, and there are other, like he, he talks about, he, he frames it as parapsychology. And so he talks about clairvoyance. He talks about remote viewing. He talks about, um, you know, changing weather. Like there are very specific things that, um, that we can root magic in, in terms of the techniques that people are using. Um, and I think if anyone wants to dig into this more in terms of how it relates to psychedelic, we did a, we did a phenomenal podcast with David Luke. I don't know if you know know of David. David's no. at um, he's in the UK. He's like part of Breaking Convention with you know friends with Ben Sessa and Robin and yep. all that UK crew. And David's done a lot of research on um, paranormal activity and psychedelics. In fact, he did a research study on smoking DMT and how it helped to improve. Uh, para para psych, psychological faculty. So the jury's still out, obviously, on that. But um, I think it's a fun thing to explore and work with. I think it's awesome. Um, thank you for sharing that. So David Luke is someone I'll look into. And the book was Real Magic. Oh, sorry, who wrote that? Real Magic by Dean Radin. R A D I N. All right. I got some future reading to to look into. There you go. All right. And and my last uh, tweet. This is your pinned tweet on Twitter, uh, <laughs> which is. Microdoses of psilocybin mushrooms with other botanicals, ashwagandha, lion's mane, cacao, will likely become the predominant form of psychiatric medication by 2030, overtaking conventional pharmaceuticals used to treat depression, anxiety, ADHD, and bipolar. And in so many ways, you sound like me. Uh, I don't talk about it as microdosing, but otherwise, like our, our narratives sound fairly, fairly aligned. But 
What makes you so confident about microdosing in particular? I certainly agree with, with psychedelics, um, but you know, microdosing is is a little bit of a different conversation. Uh, so, so why do you, why do you feel so confident about that? So, my sense is that um, this even kind of ties back into our conversation earlier, right? When we were talking about the the Terrence McKenna quote, the five to ten percent, how only a certain subsegment of people might be willing to go with complete ego dissolution and ego death. And others just might want to work with, you know, a tool or a pill or a substance that helps to manage the symptoms and eventually cure it. And my, my sense of, let's say, a, a Prozac or a Zoloft or some of these other uh, conventional medications is that it's clear that they're on the way out from where I'm sitting. It's when it comes to mental health and, and whatnot. It's clear that psychedelics and other tools that help to... Um, facilitate catharsis to help to facilitate going into the subconscious and the unconscious, these will become more um, efficacious and thus uh, more widely used. And that um, people will still want pills and supplementation to take on a consistent basis. They just will prefer to take plant medicines and botanicals rather than synthetic drugs that are sold by pharmaceutical companies, which this kind of even goes back to the very beginning of our conversation with COVID, which we don't need to get too deep into, but pharmaceutical companies haven't really been the most trustworthy of, um, of, of companies. Uh, let's look at the opioid epidemic and let's look at, um, you know, many other things as it relates to how they've generated for-profit health Canada and Europe is different. This is a very American USA centric sort of development. I know. Um, and my sense is that distrust around pharmaceutical corporations will just continue to accelerate and grow. And that more and more people, instead of putting synthetic molecules in their systems and drugs, are going to instead lean more towards plant medicines as a general way of working. Because they, they, they whether or not they're fully correct, there's a growing perception that natural is more healthy than synthetic. And again, there's nuance within that that's definitely not true across the board. Uh, you could look at plenty of plants that if you eat them will kill you instantly, like mushrooms. And you can look at plenty of synthetics like MDMA that are incredibly helpful. But my feeling intuition is assert that this sense of developing a relationship with the earth, with the land, with the food, with what we're putting into our body that is growing and that um, microdoses with other botanicals people will look to that as a much better option than Prozac and Zoloft and all these other things. That was, that was the general frame that I was thinking about it from. You sound like a goddamn hippie and I like it. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. What, one final question. Actually, I'll, I'll ask two final questions. One uh, is talking about, you know, uh, a, a microdosing stack or your supplementation stack. What, what, what do you take on a daily basis these days? And then my second question, just because I'm in the vein of asking two questions at once today, is is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd really like to talk about? Um, you know, I, I know you are a public figure and you have a very active and, and important voice in this emerging space. Um, and, and so if there's any kind of topics that you think need to be addressed or raised or like at least start the conversation, you know, this is a great opportunity to do so. Okay. I have a couple things on that. I have a fun last point to, to land on, which I think would be good. Food right. for thought and fodder. So the, the first one in terms of my current stacks, I haven't microdosed in maybe, I don't know, a month and a half to two consistently. My current supplementation regimen, I take seed 
as a prebiotic probiotic. I take Qualia. I'm currently experimenting with Qualia from Neurohacker Collective. They have Qualia Mind, Qualia Life, and Qualia Night. So I'm 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 working with that. I take uh, ancestral supplements, so desiccated organ meats, um, as a supplementation. I will also take Athletic Greens, and um, I think that's at this point that's about it in terms of supplementation. When I am doing stacks, the one that I found that I love most, it's a stack that combines Golden Teachers, which okay. is the Tepacillin mushroom, with a lion's mane extract, a chaga extract, five HTP, and something called Shilajit. That which awesome. is this sort of volcanic black thing. It's S-H-I-L-A-J-I-T. Okay. I think and long jack as well. It also has long jack in it. So it has an extract of lion's mane and chaga, 5-HTP, um, long jack, and then this thing called shilajit. And if I'm microdosing, I'm at the most taking it three times a week. Uh, I'm never doing two days in a row. I'm always taking a day off in between. And my dose level is going to be between 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams, depending on the day and the intention and, and what's going on. I'll pause there if you have any perspectives or additional comments, and then we can wrap up. No? Okay, cool. Uh, just just one, which is um, 100 to 200 milligrams. I mean, I know people talk about microdosing as being subperceptual, And for me, that is certainly not subperceptual. I mean, I don't, I just certainly don't hallucinate, but I feel that. Um, for sure. Um, so do you find the same thing or is it actually subperceptual for you? At, at hundred milligrams, it's, it's subperceptible. Uh, at 200 milligrams, it starts to sort of creep its way up into perceptibility yeah, okay. and noticing there's no significant changes in visual or auditory, meaning I can navigate my, my day, uh, as I need to, but, and that's, that's the thing that we didn't really get into in this podcast, but I'm sure you've covered on others is even the definition of microdosing is tricky to fully land on, right? Because totally. 100 milligrams for you is going to be different than 100 milligrams for me, for yeah. someone else, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so. absolutely. And then I think the final point, which is is a great consideration for um, our listeners, is, is, is just a comment on how the emerging space is growing and developing. And what I think, as with my entrepreneur hat on, where I feel like uh, there is value to be created in the the psychedelic ecosystem, and how that value um, tracks with larger systemic developments that are non psychedelic. Okay. All right. So, and I'll I'll be I'll, I'll go I'll take a little bit of time, but it's not going to get too crazy. So, um, there's this concept called uh, attractor points, right? Like attractive attractor points, and these are these are future things. That are, that are pulling our current world towards them. So as an example of this, just to help ground it a little bit more, when Bill Gates and Steve Jobs started Microsoft and Apple, respectively, the reason that they were such incredible entrepreneurs is because they had a prescient intuition about this future attractor point of digitization. When they were starting Apple and Microsoft, there wasn't much digital stuff. We were still largely analog. They saw, though, that the future of society would be mass, widespread digitization. And for that reason, the products that they were creating, respectively, would flourish as a result of that digitization that would take place 
you know, in the 90s and 2000s, the internet, the computer, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What I think every entrepreneur in the psychedelic space, or, or more broadly speaking, should be aware of as a future attractor point are what I would say three things. And, and these three things are, are relatively interconnected as we're learning and discovering that all things are interconnected. One is open source. So um, Elon Musk, when asked about the patents that he's inventing for Tesla, said, we had to do this now, right? So create these patents in the future. Tesla is now a very successful company. He's now open sourced almost all of the patents because he says, the sooner this technology can be adopted, the quicker that we can address the systemic issues that we're faced with, uh, largely climate change. So Elon, as an innovator and entrepreneur, has taken, because of his privilege, that responsibility on of being incredibly innovative and then open sourcing the patents that Tesla has invented in order to accelerate the pace at which everything else is happening. And I think that is a prescient teaching point for the psychedelic space in its current format. I'll just leave it at that. The, the, the second thing is decentralization, right? So if we're tracking the nation state and the development of the nation state, there we, we've sort of reached peak centralization. And the systems that we create going forward will be much more decentralized. Now we can use buzzy block words like blockchain and NFTs and mycelial networks and all that. But the truth is we're even seeing how this is developing in the psychedelic space where uh, decriminalization and state-by-state -state legalization is clearly going to outpace FDA approval. So the FDA approval is the centralized approach. It's nation states. It's the old industrial way of doing things. With this new information age that we've been stepping into, there's a relocalization of power or decentralization of power. And I think that's really important to be mindful of going forward. And then I think the third attractor point is community first, right? Community first. Because in the past, we've always chosen our work. We've, and we've chosen, in many ways, the people that we spend time with. We've chosen our mission or our purpose based on a metric, which is often money. You know, if I get this job, I'm going to make this income. I'm going to get this credential. I'm going to climb this ladder. And these, I would say, material-driven instincts, this materialistic instinct is sort of evolving into something that I would call post-material. And where people, what people are discovering is that existential wealth is much more fulfilling and nourishing than strict financial or abstract wealth. And that the businesses and initiatives that can facilitate community, that can facilitate a coming together, that can create a really compelling mission for people to get around, that community will also be the business. And that business uh, may also be where people um, have families. And that family may also be you know, how people and, and kids are educated. So in other words, the future of business is not this sort of superficial bifurcation. I'm at work, I'm this person. And at home, I'm this person. I see the future of where this is going is community focused, right? Where we can integrate all elements and aspects of who we are into a cohesive way of being. And that way there's full alignment in our entire self. There's one guy who I love his work specifically on this. His name is Balaji's. I can never pronounce his last name. Maybe you've seen some stuff with him. Um, but he's talked about this concept of the networked state. And what will come after the nation state 
is the network state and that those network states will be non-contiguous, meaning you could have 20 acres in Russia, 50 acres in America, 40 acres in Argentina. It's run on a certain cryptocurrency. You can have founders, you can have participants, right? And so what I see as the future is um, people are going to have more and more choice over their sovereignty. They're going to have more and more choice over where they choose to live, who they choose to live with, how they choose to interact with, what work they choose to do. And ideally, at some point, that will be less, it's already happening, but that will be less and less driven by um, financial gain and more driven by what do I find meaningful? What do I find fulfilling? What do I find to be something that I would want to spend the rest of my life uh, helping to build and contribute to? So you're talking about the kibbutzification of the future with some crypto. It's basically what we're talking yeah, you about. Know. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, I wrote it. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of those points, like uh, I'm, I'm a big believer. The third point we may not agree on, but in my mind, the biggest social and cultural drivers of the next 50 years are going to be crypto, psychedelics, and probably mRNA uh, medicines. Uh, I think they're going to fundamentally shift just about every aspect of, of our, our current life. And uh, there's a lot of things that I agree with you in that. But that is a much deeper conversation that we have time for. So we'll leave it on that provoking <laughs> thought uh, and we'll circle back uh, and let's pick up that conversation at some point in the future. So in the meantime, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciated your, your openness and your thoughtfulness uh, around this and, and looking forward to continuing to work together to, to craft this industry and, and, you know, hopefully set the path forward. You know, I, I, I was struck by a thought the other day that, uh, you know, um, uh, Winston Churchill said history, uh, will be kind for to me because I intend to write it. Um, and yeah. my thought was, I don't care what history will say about me for I intend to write the future. Uh, it was kind of the thought that came up and I have a feeling that's kind of your world view as well. So, uh, it will be fun to be on this path together. So thanks again for coming on and, uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Ronan. This was a blast. It's been a pleasure knowing you these past couple of years. And I, and I, I think to get back to the privilege equating to responsibility, I think you, you exemplify and embody that with the work you've done at field trip. The, Thank you. Um, level of, I mean, not only investment that you've been able to raise and, and you know, the great PR, but, uh, you know, all the many people that you're helping through your now clinics and uh, all the other trials. So it's, it's going to be a fun next, next few years is, is what I anticipate. It sure will. I must confess that walking into my conversation with Paul, I wasn't expecting to find that we seem to be walking very similar paths and see the world in very similar ways. The thing that stuck with me most though was how Paul thinks about privilege and responsibility. At first I was expecting some sort of wokish commentary as seems to be endemic in the psychedelic community, but I was pleased to see that Paul's approach was that our privilege comes not with the responsibility to seek to elevate others, which often incites the white savior backlash among some, but rather to use the liberty we have to push, bend, or break parts of the system that need to be pushed, bent, or broken. In other words, that the privilege he and I may have by being white males is better seen not necessarily as privilege, but really greater freedom to have responsibility, as in having the ability to respond to situations. I'd never conceived of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. As Tom Robbins said, 
In times of widespread chaos and confusion, it has been the duty of more advanced human beings, artists, scientists, clowns, and philosophers, to create order. In times such as ours, however, when there is too much order, too much management, too much programming and control, it becomes the duty of superior men and women to fling their favorite monkey wrenches into the machinery. And I appreciate that's exactly what Paul is trying to do. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, which is particularly important for me right now because I have COVID. And remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Amanda Elliott, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, and Macy Baker. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Paul Austin for joining us today. To learn more about all that we have talked about, check out his companies Third Wave and Synthesis. <laughs>